burnout is the big kind of buzzword right now that's going along with that concept of the great resignation of so many people are leaving. That work is now being done by the other people that are left. This is Chan with the Plan the Podcast, a podcast providing career advice and easy actual steps for frustrated professionals, helping you overcome career challenges so you can stop feeling confused and defeated and start feeling focused and confident in order to excel in your career. I'm your host, Max Chan. Now let's dive into the episode. Hey, Karen, welcome to the show. Hi. It is so good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So you have an extensive amount of HR experience, right? So why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about that? Sure, absolutely. So I have been with some Fortune 100 companies. I've been with nonprofits and I've been in small organizations as well. So I've headed up the HR function, the training function, the organizational change management function. And, you know, it's what I do and have done for a lot of years. And it's kind of like most people, when they go to a job, I learn the foreign language of the company, right? So I know what I do, but I have to learn the industry. I have to learn about the culture. I have to learn about the organization. And so that's always the fun challenge I have when I was starting with new companies. And, you know, the piece I love about, it's kind of hard to say you love HR, but (laughs) The piece I love is really working with the clients. And so there's a lot of other stuff involved in human resources, but really it's working with the clients that's so satisfying. So in HR, you've seen a lot of employees come and go. And that's the main point of discussion I want you to share with us is the employee life cycle, going from like being excited about the job when they first get it to the growing pains to becoming disengaged for whatever reason. Walk us through like what's the like first few months of a new employee like sure, that you've seen? Sure. Well, let's start a little sooner than that. So either there's a new opening or a backfill of an opening, right? And the first thing the company has to do is decide, are we hiring? Why are we hiring? And what specifically do we need for it? And then, of course, they go out and recruit and they source and they interview and they hire. So that's really that a whole attraction piece is the front end of that employee life cycle. And then they're brought on board. And that would start with theoretically, you know, the offer letter and all that good stuff in day one. And you showing up. Now, showing up actually in our world today might mean virtual or it might mean in a real live environment. So clearly, you know, if you're working in a hotel, they need people to do housekeeping and do maintenance and do things like that. But in other work, sitting here at a computer working remotely is the work, right? And so really the first touch point is when they, quote, walk in the door. And what's that experience like? Now, I'm going to make a few assumptions. And that first assumption is that that new hire has done their research on the company. The interview has gone well. They've asked some really pertinent questions about the culture of the organization, and they've determined from their perspective, it's a fit. And the company agrees, and that's why the position was offered, right? So I'm assuming you're walking in the door feeling good. And I would hope that would be the case with everyone taking, you know, a position of some sort. And I guess I ought to actually make another kind of disclaimer comment. I probably am going to use the word employee or team member a lot, but I want to be clear that that could mean a full-time employee, a part-time employee, 
a virtual, like a VA, virtual assistant, a contract person. But really the idea is it's somebody that the leader has to lead, right? It's a team member of some sort. So while I might use the term employee, that sometimes makes you think, oh, they're a full-time employee drawing a salary. I want you to think a little broader than that. And I think your audience understands that, but I thought I would probably mention that. Oh, great. So yeah, so you got the onboarding and walk us through like the first couple of years of the employee experience uh, for that. Sure. So from that front end perspective, from the leader's perspective, I very much work on the first week, the first month, the first quarter, the first year, because at each of those stages, the leader needs to do different things for that new hire. And the new hire has a ton of new things to learn along the way. And certainly the expectation isn't that everything is done on day one. So it's a process, right? And so that first week, it's about getting all the stuff that you need to be a successful employee, whether that be your laptop or a phone or technology or software, or if you're actually sitting at a desk, maybe it's a key to the building and a desk and, you know, or uniform or whatever that might be. And then it's really what I would call that official onboarding that the manager or human resources or president of the company or somebody does to welcome you. And that's really, hopefully, everything you're hearing coming out of the employer's mouth is about the culture and the vision and the values of the company. And you want to see congruence. You want to see that what you're experiencing as a new hire is what they were saying in the interview, (laughs) what they're showing you on that nice little PowerPoint presentation or whatever. And that is really what it is. And so those first few weeks and months are really about getting acclimated. And it's really trying to have both your manager and the employee really kind of get on the same page as far as what is the job? What skills do I bring to the table? What do I need to learn? Who do I need to partner with or collaborate with? And, you know, what can I do to bring value so that I'm going to feel fulfilled so that I'm going to be here six months from now to actually partake, you know, in the work of the company. Yeah. So speaking of which, how long does it take usually to like ramp up an employee? You said like, it seems to be the common rule. It takes about six months for someone to be acclimated into that role before they actually start being productive, right? Right. And it very much depends, right? Obviously, technical roles take a lot longer because if you're dealing with software or let's say your tier one support or something, You really have to get up to speed on the software for the client calls you're taking. Whereas somebody who is in a direct customer facing position, not necessarily sales, but you know, you're working the counter or that time is much more compressed because you're doing a series of repetitive tasks. And that is what I would call lower level learning, meaning you know how to do X, Y, and Z versus somebody who's being strategic and analyzing things and taking in information and then trying to figure out where do I go with that? Those are higher level of learning and that's gonna take a whole lot longer. Yeah, absolutely. And in regards to that, like there's obviously, people tend to stay at companies a lot less now compared to before. So like, do you recommend like someone leaving a job within one to two years? Because they're not really being that productive in the first six months. And then if you leave six months after it, there's not a lot you've made an impact on, right? So what's your thoughts on that? Well, I would love to think that people want to stay for longer than six months or a year because you as the employee want to get as much out of it as the company wants to get out of you, right? 
And so hopefully that's a match. But in this day and age, people are coming to the table with a really wide variety of skills. And sometimes a job description is written so tightly that there's no wiggle room for this is the job and there are no two ways about it. But in today's environment, with the number of people that are leaving the workforce and the number of positions that are opening, employers are really starting to rethink, what is it? Do I really need these 27 things on the job description to be done in order to hire a person? Or are these the five core things and that we can work with the rest? As long as you've got the right personality, you've got the right drive, you've got the right vision, you know, whatever it is that's important to the company, some of that stuff you can't teach. And so it's, does the person inherently come with that? And then we'll teach them that software, we'll teach them that thing, we'll work with them on this piece. Yeah, to add to that, some people, some professionals might feel intimidated by long job descriptions in the job ad. Like they think that they need everything. But I always tell people, as long as you have like 60 to 70%, you correct me if I'm wrong because you're in HR. As long as you have 60 to 70%, you should be a good match. Because like if you have 100%, that means you know everything and there's not a lot of room for growth, right? Right. And, you know, there is one kind of caveat to that. And that is in this world where so many people are working virtually, the employer isn't limited to looking for people in their backyard, which just means the world's our oyster. And so instead of having 5,000 people in your target market that could potentially be interested in a job, now you have the world. And so there could be a slew more people that want to apply for that, in which case the employer could think they could be more picky, right? Because they think that they're going to have that many more people applying because it doesn't matter where I live, right? I can do the work. And that's where you start to get into really the culture of the organization and are they really saying what they mean, right? But in general, I would say that if you meet the requirements, and that ought to be the way it's written in a job description, these are the requirements, And those, I hope, aren't a whole laundry list of things. But, you know, if you meet those requirements, absolutely do it. If you meet most of those requirements, those are the things you're going to play up in your cover letter, right? And so, obviously, if you don't have some of the deal breakers, if they say you have to have this certain certification or you have to have this type of degree or you have to have these letters after your name, then that could well be a deal breaker, right? Yeah, like some of the jobs I've seen, there's essential requirements and then preferred or nice to have. So if it's yes. nice to have and you don't have it, it's okay, you still apply right? as long as you exactly. have the essentials. Because some might say like, if you're a data scientist, they might say Python is a must. So like, even if you have like 80% of everything else, if you don't know Python, you can't do the job, right? Right. And depending on things, the recruiter, whoever's doing that sourcing through the jobs that are coming in, have typically worked with the hiring manager and they're very clear on these are the things you have to have. And even though the ad may say one thing, they're looking through it to say, really, 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 I got to have this, this, and this. You may or you may not know what that is as an applicant, but sometimes that recruiter, those terms don't mean anything to them. I mean, there's like, well, what does it mean to be blah, blah, blah certified? Or what does it mean to be you know, a tier two support in our world or whatever it is. And so it's incumbent upon that recruiter to really get those questions answered in advance. That makes sense. And and speaking of culture, as a candidate who is looking for a new opportunity, what type of questions should you ask the interviewer, hiring manager, hiring panel to learn more about the culture without 
making it a bit awkward. Like what I mean by that is like, would you ask a question like, what's the turnover like at the company? That might be too much. Right. So what are some right. good questions you can ask without right. being too overboard? Absolutely. So first of all, obviously you want to do your research, right? You want to get on the company, look at the website, see if you can find mission, vision, values, those kind of things, make note of those. And as you're browsing through the website or their LinkedIn page or their whatever, you're going to start to see things and anything that you can find on the company that is a connection to the work you might do is really helpful to kind of sock away and have that as potential question to ask. As far as the culture goes, it's fair game to ask the hiring manager, or the recruiter, what their experience has been in, you know, the company really values innovation. How do you see that play out here? Or I see that you're the manager of the organization. And I see on the company website that the vision of the company is blah, blah, blah. Do you have any programs in place to support that for employees, right? It, those kind of things. The other kind of things that would be very helpful to learn about is what professional and personal development looks like. Because one of the things about, and this is kind of an HR term, but that term employee engagement, that's the concept that the employee feels connected to the company, that they enjoy doing what they do every day, they have a sense of purpose, and they want to be there doing the work. And so one of the tenets of employee engagement is that companies who have engaged workforces focus on employee development. And so that's a perfect thing to be asking about because, again, not everybody's going to come to the table with the same thing, but they always want to be able to learn. And you want to know if you're walking into an organization that values that, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess what is called the honeymoon phase, right? Where they're very excited with this new opportunity and they want to learn a lot and all that. So from your experience, when does this engagement start happening with an employee? Well, if the things aren't addressed upon hiring, you know, like making sure everything's congruent, what you're saying you're doing is what you're doing, what your vision is, is what you're living out. That's where things can start to kind of be questionable for the employee, right? I mean, it could be pretty quick that they start saying, well, this isn't what I thought it was. But really, after that onboarding process is where the employee is starting to form those opinions about, am I doing the right thing? I'm at the right place. Now, we also know in this economy, and I have certainly seen it, especially with some nonprofits that I have worked with that have a heavy number of hourly employees, and this could be COVID days or not, it really doesn't matter, that in some cases, people are just trying to make a living. And if you can get paid five cents more, and it's a 15 minute shorter commute for them, they're going to go. It doesn't matter. <laughs> they're going to go because what they're looking for is not just quality of life, but more money and a shorter commute, et cetera, et cetera. So sometimes it can be that simple, right? In which case, the company really has to put programs in place and things that address those things in advance. So maybe it's a ride-sharing opportunity that the company provides. Maybe it's being very clear on what this pay scale is and what that looks like after three months, six months, a year, whatever, so that you can start to plant the seed with the employee that that's something that I'm willing to stick around for. 
That's not always the case in full-time exempt or salaried positions, but certainly is the case in hourly, in some hourly positions, right? Because people are just trying to get by paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, I get what you're saying. And to add to that, so what are some signs of disengagement of an employee? They don't care. They are taking more time, more unplanned time off, more sick time off. They're feeling burnt out. Burnout is the big kind of buzzword right now that's going along with that concept of the great resignation of so many people are leaving. And because so many people are leaving the job, that work is now being done by the other people that are left. And so burnout is a really real thing that's happening now. So those kind of things about they're not feeling connected, them not interacting with their peers, them not poisoning the well with other employees, because that's what can happen with disengaged employees. They can actually turn, if you think of a fence, you've got the people who are engaged on this side of the fence, and you've got the people who are disengaged on this side of the fence, and then you got a lot of fence sitters. And what we know is the most Typical people you can influence are the people that are sitting on the fence, and they can go either way really quickly. And so if you've got a disengaged person having the ear of somebody that's on the fence, that might not be good. Yeah, negativity spreads like wildfire compared to positivity, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes the disengagement happens gradually. So like they like to come in the beginning, but then it wasn't what they signed up for. Like they try to make it work and then they slowly become disengaged when they realize that it is not what they wanted, uh, whether there's right. a miscommunication or they realize that is actually not what they wanted when there's some self-reflection. However, a situation where disengagement happens rapidly, in my opinion, would be, let's say you have a couple or a few professionals are trying to vie for this promotion and then only one person is able to get it, right? Then the other ones that get rejected they end up getting disengaged really quick unless you try to resolve it. So with that being said, what is your suggestions for managers that have these professionals that didn't get the promotion and now they don't know what to do and they feel unhappy? Because like when you don't get the promotion, people tend to want to start looking elsewhere. So right. what's your thoughts on like right. try to keep them engaged even if they didn't get the promotion? Because right. again, like they understand right. that they only, you only put one person in that position. You can't like get them all promoted. So like how do you ensure that right. the atmosphere is still good right. even though some people right. are disappointed? Well, there's obviously a big part of the answer is communication. Surprise, surprise. But I want to kind of address it from two perspectives. One, during the interview process, where nobody knows who's going to get the position right, that the hiring manager can be very clear on the process and how they are making their decision, right? Because it might not be apparent to the person who's applying that they're really valuing tenure versus college degree. They may be looking for somebody who lives in your town and not somebody who's going to work remotely. I mean, I don't know what those are, but it would be really important for the person who's being interviewed to be clear on what that is. So whenever the answer comes out, the other handful of people that weren't chosen can at least say to themselves, oh, I get it. Okay. I really thought I was the best candidate, but I really get that they're looking for somebody that had blah, 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 right? So that's kind of the front end of the equation. The post end of the equation, when that person is selected, the question is, how is everybody else told? Or are they, right? And so sometimes you don't even know until all of a sudden you see an email that so-and-so has been promoted to this position, and you're like, wait a minute, 
I interviewed for that, you know, and so there's that level of communication, which could be an HR thing, it could be a hiring manager thing. But certainly, in my opinion, that's where a personal conversation would be appropriate, just for the courtesy, because this is an employee we're talking about, right? This is somebody that's already working there that has put themselves out and is willing to do something. And maybe that something is expanding the repertoire of skills. Maybe it's a promotion. So in my opinion, that's a really kind of a no-brainer that that ought to be happening. The other, though, is after all that said and done, to have that person's manager sit down with them and debrief the process. Or even the manager could debrief the process during the interview if they're even aware they are being interviewed. And that's Again, a company decision that you may or may not know that. But how great would it feel to be sit down with somebody and them ask you, how did this go? How'd you feel? What do you think? Or before the interview, what can I help you with? This is going to be a great opportunity for you. You know, how can I help you? So communication is sort of the bottom line, but how you come to that, there are a lot of different places it could come into play. Agreed. And in terms of employee engagement, again, Sometimes people like the environment, they like the work, but they don't feel challenged enough, so to speak. And again, although companies want to keep the employees as long as possible, sometimes they just want to do something else. So you might not see the disengagement. So with that being said, like, what's the mindset of like a higher manager, a manager in terms of like keeping employees? Because they know like people do eventually move on. So right. like, what's your thoughts right. on all that? Right. Well, I'm certainly an advocate of doing engagement surveys, which is, you know, anytime an employer does a survey, they have to be very careful that it's non-biased. They don't know the data. You don't know who filled out what form. And there are a lot of companies, obviously, that can help technologically with that so that it's all transparent to the company and all they see is the data that shows up. But the engagement questions are really about how that person is feeling connected to the company, to their manager, to their team, and for their own development. And if the company goes that route and has that, then it's certainly incumbent upon each division or manager to have feedback with their team to debrief the results, right? And it's not a one-way street, it's a two-way street. So whatever the data shows, the next question out of the manager's mouth is, Why do you suppose that is? Or what can we do about that? And that's where you're going to get some collaborative brainstorming, assuming there's trust, right? Because trust is kind of the must that must happen for people to be willing to step forward and give opinions that may be different than what their manager is thinking. I've done employee engagement surveys. I'm sure my listeners have done them at some point. You recommend them to be anonymous, right? You don't want the Oh, ab- absolutely. Yeah. And with as few demographics as possible. So for example, people deal with it different ways, but you want to only cut the data where it's statistically significant. So if you have a department of three, it's that's too small of a group to call out their own data, right? And so you might, with smaller departments, need to consolidate smaller departments together into one group. But as far as information, it's really about what department you're in. If there's a location, you know, that needs to be geographically kind of divvied up. And really, once you go a lot beyond that, employees are going to say, uh-uh, I see that barcode on that piece of paper. They know who I am. Do I? know? I don't. I, honestly, I don't know who they are. 
but we need to be able to get the data together. So again, it goes back to trust. So if a manager or the executive team wants to do an employee survey, what type of questions should they ask? For example, there's a company called Gallup, which you might have heard. They do a lot of surveying and cultural kind of analysis. And they have something called the Q12, which is literally 12 questions, right? And when I have done it, some of the questions, people look at you funny, like, why are you asking that question? And the one that I would oftentimes get kind of a look from people is, do I have a best friend at work? And they're like, why would that matter? Well, somebody that doesn't feel connected to somebody at work is not connected, (laughs) right? And so they might well be more apt to leave than the person who has somebody to have lunch with every day, or that somebody who can commiserate over whatever the issue is. So there are some very basic questions about development, about walking the talk, about friendships, about the work and the enjoyability and your ability to do the work you love daily. And then there are companies that have a whole slew of other questions. But I'm a fan of the Q12 because it's so widely known in the world. And they have thousands and thousands and thousands of data points. And so that data is always available to compare your company against. It costs money, but it's a good one. Great. So just to summarize our conversation in terms of like the employee life cycle. So the candidate, the professional interviews for his position, they think there's a good culture fit. So then they come on, you onboard them as best as you can. And then they start doing the work. And then where would they start getting disengaged? Like, again, like we said. Right. It would be right then. That's where engagement hopefully will begin to start or wane. But then the step after that is the development stage. And so that's when it's incumbent upon the manager to work with that employee to develop their skill. And and that's not a really broad brush thing. It's like, you know, I don't know what the company would have, but maybe they have goals against each of the corporate goals and it's a trickle down effect, for example. So there's the performance side, which is a discussion, right? And then there is development, which is interpersonal, professional, and personal, and what that would look like. And so the more a company works on the development piece, theoretically, the higher the engagement because that person's feeling connected and they're having that sense of accomplishment and they're seeing growth, whatever growth means to them. And then, like you said, the end of the life cycle is they're moving on, right? And that's not a bad thing. And that would be a great time to do an exit interview. And it would also be a great time to do anytime is a great time to do what we call a stay interview, which is why you're here. What do you like? You know, what don't you like? What can we do to keep you? Have you thought about leaving recently? Now, that question takes a lot of trust, right? But those are the kind of things that you can be doing through that entire life cycle. So speaking of trust, you got the exit and stay interviews. So stay interviews you do at a certain intervals, depending on how long they've been there. And then exit interviews always when they leave. So when it comes to the trust factor, even if an employee is unhappy, they're not really going to say much in the exit interview, in my opinion. And then for the stay interview, again, if the trust is not there, they're not going to say, oh, I'm thinking actually leaving in the next few months. I don't think people are going to say that. So my question is, how do you get like honest answers from the exit and the stay interviews? 
Right. Well, you know, let me talk about exit first. You would be surprised. There's some very candid responses on exit interviews. And those are actionable, right? I would share them with managers and we would review them and we would build action plans on how to improve those things. Now, not everybody is doing that. So for example, if it is a separation, meaning the people chose to leave for whatever reason, I would always do an exit interview. If the person was terminated, you probably are not going to do an exit interview because you're forcing, you're saying goodbye to the employee, right? So in that case, an exit interview may not happen, but the stay interview should be done with everybody, whatever regularity your company has. And trust is built over time. And so you can't just start doing a stay interview if you've never talked to your employees and expect to have great results, (laughs) you know. And so it is incumbent upon that manager to build those relationships and be vulnerable, be authentic, be humble, you know, point out mistakes you make and ask for their feedback. I mean, all of that turns that manager into a person and that person becomes real and that person is somebody that is fallible too. That makes sense. So going back to what we were talking about before, so they like the culture and then they're excited in the first few months because it's new, right? But then eventually with any job, it does become a bit rinse and repeat. So how do you try to like encourage them to like ask for more opportunities to do other types of jobs so they're not doing the same thing over and over again? Right. First of all, there are people who love doing what they do every day and have no interest in doing anything else. And they're perfectly happy and they're perfectly engaged because... They're using whatever those skills are every day, and they love it. And so there are some people who are not looking for the next best thing. And so, again, from the manager's perspective, you're talking to that person, you're learning that about them. And so for that person, it may be about giving them more challenging assignments in the work that they're currently doing. Or maybe it's being a little bit more hands-off with the person who's doing that thing in that same thing that they do well and they like to do. If that's the person that is happy to stay, they just want to just keep plugging away doing what they're doing and that's valued, then that's great. Just keep them doing it and keep talking to them. If it's somebody who has the ability to progress within the organization, then those again are conversations that this manager is saying. So there's a technical term that we use called situational leadership, which is everything's a four quadrant model. There are four boxes, right? So that concept of that person I was just talking about who does really well at that task, that person needs very little direction. They need support and they need FaceTime, but they don't need the manager micromanaging, right? And that's going to keep them engaged because they're having the manager provide them the level of support they need, which isn't a lot, right? (laughs) Compare that to the new hire and the manager could have asked that new hire, go, you know, run out to this place, do this, pick up that, come back, do this, do that. And the person's going, where am I going again? You know, and so for that person, you need to be very directive. You need to be very hands-on. You need to be very explicit. And as they grow comfortable with it, then you point them back to, let's say there's a job aid that says, you know, these are the seven steps. You might not do it, but every few months, here, let's walk through that together. And then they're more comfortable with that. And then it's like, hey, Joe, remember, you could be doing this. There's that piece of paper there in the binder or on the computer that 
shows those steps. Let me know if you have any questions. So it's about really being where the employee needs you to be versus where you as a manager want to be. Got And just going back to the termination point, obviously, if you're aware about your abilities, you know if a termination is going to happen, unless it's a layoff, right? Do the budget cuts or whatever. So my question to you here is like when someone's underperforming and the next step is to put them on a PIP, performance improvement plan, that's when this person tends to disengage really quickly and is looking for a job right away. So how do you build that trust to like, because from, you correct me wrong, but usually people who get on PIP, they tend to not recover usually, unless there's something you want to share after I finish here. So what's your recommendation or thoughts on like, when it comes to employees starting to disengage like rapidly because they've just been put on PIP plan and how to like build that trust to make sure that right. you're not on the chopping block if you do this properly? Obviously there are two sides to the coin, right? Because either the employee or the company may feel like it is time to part ways and that PIP could be the impetus for one or the other to make some decisions, right? And there's nothing wrong with decisions being made based on data, but decision being made on feelings, not so much. But if the data is there and let's say they're on a call center and they're supposed to be taking calls every three minutes, or they're supposed to be answering responses at this level of service or whatever it is, that data can be compiled. And that data can be compared to their teammates. And if that person is not doing whatever it is that those measures are, then that's data for that conversation. And the person, then the question becomes, and why are you not doing that? And there may be some very personal things going on with that person. I mean, they could have had a death in the family. They might have had, you know, a loss of income. They might have had a child that just started school and they have a new pickup routine. I mean, you don't know, but you don't know unless you ask. (laughs) So there could be interpersonal reason why those stats are no longer what it is. And that's actually a point there. Is it a new change? Or is this a change that has been happening consistently over time and you as a manager maybe neglected it or all of a sudden you're the new manager in the department and you're looking for a PIP on somebody and you don't see and it's like, well, how come it's not there? Oh, well, they didn't do it. Well, it's been going on for a while, but you didn't document it. So it's really, you know, first of all, figuring out why is the change happening? Is it a light switch on, like it just changed or is it kind of the way it's been? And then maybe it is the decision of the employee to say, you know, this isn't cutting it anymore. And then, and if that's the case, that's the case. That's your choice. You're not going to be a fit every time. Professionals always have like managers that they don't gel with for whatever reason. And then they have managers that they love, right? I think it's one of those things that you shouldn't take it personally. There's always going to be a position for you out there that would make you a good fit for it, right? Right. Yeah. And when it comes back to the employee life cycle and helping professionals stay engaged, it seems like the common theme that we're discussing right now is a couple of things, right? It's about communication in terms of like, are you aligned with our culture? Communicating to see like, do you still like the work? Do you want to do something else? And then like having like stay interviews just to like build that trust, say like, are you, have you been looking recently? Like what's your thoughts and what's your career directory? So it seems like, again, the common theme is like, if you want employees to stay engaged, you have to like communicate with them regularly and they also should have some influence and input in the company or at least the team direction. 
is there anything else I'm missing there or is there anything I want to add? You have nailed a big part of it. That piece about professional development is huge and then feeling connected to the organization. So, you know, for example, a non-smoker, I've never smoked in my life. I could never go to work for a tobacco company. It just doesn't align with who I am, right? But if I was hired in a company and I thought they did X and all of a sudden I get there and they do Y... I'm going to have to step back and look at that, right? And so, again, I think the term communication is so often used in so many different ways, but it really is because we've got assumptions in our head, the employees got assumptions in their head, and we don't really know if we're on the same page unless we talk. Yeah, absolutely. So people tend to think that people leave for a higher salary, right? But that's usually like a secondary motive because I personally think that it has more to do with the culture or lack of growth. And then the money is an extra bonus. So what's your thoughts on like from your HR experience, what's the common reasons that people leave? Right. So I'm going to say generically, it's the manager. And again, there are a whole lot of ways you could cut that one. I mean, it could be about how much they spend time with you or don't, how much they, you know, I mean, it could be literally anything, but the leader is the conduit to the rest of the organization. And so if that manager is doing a good job of leading you, they're doing a good job of sharing information. They're giving you the opportunity to have FaceTime. They're giving you opportunities to collaborate. They're giving you time off. I mean, whatever it is they're doing to break through the silos or to streamline whatever your needs are, that's huge for the employee. It's huge. So you're absolutely right. It is not about money. Now, for hourly people, it's more about money and about proximity of work. But for exempt, permanent, full-time, whatever people. It certainly is about the manager and about the work and about the culture and how much in alignment all that is. Yeah, because if it was about money, people would just be job hopping like every one to two years, right? So my thought is like, you can always make more money somewhere else, but it's very hard to find like a good manager and good culture, right? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. You've got it nailed. Yeah, I want to end this podcast conversation with one last question for you. So my podcast, as you are aware, is about helping professionals overcome career challenges. So my question to end it off is, in your career, what has been the biggest challenge or obstacle that you had to face? And what steps did you take to overcome it and the lessons learned to get to where you are today as a professional? I guess I want to share with you something that's not real obvious, if that's okay. I have a congenital hearing loss. I wear hearing aids in both ears, and I have grown up with it, and it's gotten worse as I've gotten older. And I literally would, for most of my adult life, have never told you that it mattered. But as I grow and as I learn, I realize that that's not really the case. I'm coping, and I'm putting in place measures to accommodate what I need to do. And so for all of us, we have something that is unique about us. And whatever that uniqueness is, we either ought to be playing up, we ought to be shoring up, or we ought to be making sure that it works for us. So in my case, I will position myself in a room in a meeting to make sure I can hear. I will listen very attentively. And I think I'm even reading your lips. While I don't know that I read lips, I think I'm reading lips. And so I am concentrating really hard 
to make sure that I'm catching what you're saying. Because quite frankly, I don't want to look stupid. Nobody does, right? And so I have these self-imposed ideas, just like anybody else has, that I've lived with and I've grown up with. And at some point, you just got to say, this is me, right? This is who I am. I bring gifts to the table and I may have some challenges. And if people want to look past that, I would appreciate that. But if they can't, they can't. And that diversity of experience and who we are as people makes the workplace much richer, much, much richer. I heard a study that the highest performing teams at companies are the most diverse teams. Absolutely. You are right. And so is that study. Awesome. So how can people reach out to you to learn more about what you do and how you can help them in their career? Well, I love to have freebies available to people and things like that on my website. So you can certainly go to my website to learn about the one-on-one coaching I do, about any of those freebies, about my Facebook page. I mean, all that stuff is on there. So you can go to KarenLewCreates.com. Can I share with you the story of why that's the name? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So nobody calls me Karen Lou, except my family. And so as I was starting my business, I was trying to figure out what was important to me. And being congruent and whole across my entire life was really important because it's too much energy to try to be somebody you're not. And so I said, what can I do to be really clear day in and day out of who I am? And sharing with the world that I'm Karen Liu is one way I do that. And the creates is what I do. I create. I'm an artist. I create oil paintings. I create processes. I create leaders. I create stuff. And so to me, Karen Liu creates is about as real as I can get. It's all about being authentic and real in this environment, right? Because I feel like I connect with fakeness, right? It is. It absolutely is. Awesome conversation and really appreciate the time. Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time with me. It was so enjoyable. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this content valuable, here's three ways I can help you achieve your career goals for free. First, subscribe to this podcast as I post two episodes a week. Number two, leave a five-star review as this helps build the credibility of the show so we can gain access to more influential people to interview and bring those lessons to you to help elevate your career. And number three, connect with me on social media. There's a link in the show notes for you to click on that compiles all my active social media accounts, making it easy for you to find me and connect with me. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, Thank you.